Now we go on to Andrew, Andrew Brooks, who is the, um, he's with the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and he has first-hand cockpit experience of V-bombers, of course, including the, the Victor. Um, most pilots, you, you recall, are selected because they're so intelligent, but they mustn't have any imagination, <laughs> because they would scare themselves if they had imagination, and they wouldn't follow the book. But Andrew is one of those pilots with an imagination, and he's also done well in the field of academia, and, uh, and that's where he is now as a consultant with the Imperial Institute. So very grateful for you to come and address us today. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we've heard about uh, Gus Lackman being coming into the firm and the fact that the good doctor was so absent-minded he forgot to get himself naturalised. So when war came, he found himself interned for the duration in the Isle of Man. And after 1943, he was allowed to communicate back with his deputy, as we heard, Godfrey Lee, to resume work on, on the Manx, the tailless research airplane, designed to overcome the problem of drag and centre of gravity displacement caused by heavy tail armament. And so Lackman's fertile brain had come up this twin pusher, which first flew in August 43. Swept wings with a fin and rudder on each tip, and christened Manx, because Manx tails have no cats, and cats have no tails, and perhaps as an oblique reference to Lackman in his distant abode. <laughs> this is a World War II concept with no reference to high Mach number research, but it shows the direction <coughs> that Heinle Page appointed in the world of tailless sweep. And when English Electric tendered successfully for their Canberra to replace the Mosquito, Sir Fred was so confident a similar replacement would come for the Lincoln in five or six years' time, he issued a confidential memorandum on the 14th of June 1945 requesting an immediate investigation into two classes of bomber, both to make use of the experience gained with, Link, with Manx. The bulk of the initial work fell on the research engineer Godfrey Lee. Uh, I was very fortunate to meet Godfrey along with quite a few other people. Um, and he, telling me, was sent out to study German tailless research projects in October 1945. This time he's about 32, and he spent his time talking mainly to research engineers and aerodynamicists at the Vulcanröder Experimental Establishment near Brunswick <coughs> and at the old university town of Göttingen. He told me it was there that he found out what the true story of what wing sweep could do for you, namely that you could have a sensible thickness cord ratio of 10 to 12% and still fly at Mach 0.8 upwards without serious drag rise. And on his return from Germany, Lee proposed a proposal for an aircraft powered by four Avons, 122-foot span, wing area of 2,100 square feet, aspect ratio of 7, and a wing load of 43 pounds per square feet to carry a 10,000-pound bomb over 520 knots over a still air range of 5,000 miles. The swing wing creation, and you saw a picture of it earlier, had wing tips that curved upwards until they were almost vertical. The, the term HP-80 came in at this stage, and it was very much in, in, in keeping with current RAF studies, which were the higher a bomber flew, the harder it would be to catch, and the faster it travelled, the less time it would be exposed to detection and attack. Must be remembered this time on that in those days, many experts believed that Mach 1 was a boundary you crossed at your peril. 
And the, the RAF went for so if the RAF went for an attacker that could fly at the brink of the sonic barrier, it would force an opponent to cross and recross this hazard as he tried to intercept. The idea of a sleek HP-80 stripped of turrets and armor appealed to an RF who issued specification B-35 of 46 on the 24th of January 1947 for a day and night medium-range bomber carrying a 10,000-pound bomb, and this is it, the Blue Danube, to a target 1,500 nautical miles from a base that could be anywhere in the world. Cruising speed was to be 500 knots, 575 mph, Mach 0.873 in the stratosphere and had to reach 50,000 feet within two and a half hours of takeoff. <clears throat> and to meet this requirement, Hanley Page came with a wing tapered from an inboard section of maximum 53 degrees sweep back to minimize frontal dragon comp- compressibility out to a moderate 22 degrees to preclude the chances of tip stall. In between was an intermediate section of around 35 degrees to blend the two extremities together. And the result was a 100-foot span wing of about 2,000 square feet in which three changes of sweep or kinks were equally spaced. And so this then is the crescent wing, combining a swept-back thick wing and an unswept wing on one aerofoil with the added advantage that by varying wing thickness along the sweep, you could maintain a constant critical Mach number from root to tip. The aircraft couldn't have reached 50,000 feet with less wing area, and yet there was enough depth in the wing route to accommodate the engines. Here's the engines on, if you like, shows you the sweep on the Mark 1. And I have to say, nobody would dream of fitting engines inside 53 degrees of sweep today. In 1947, the USAF B-52-B-47 solution of engines in underwing pods was perceived, though, to mean induced drag plus a larger fin and rudder to cope with asymmetric flight when the aim was to achieve the cleanest possible profile drag. So you can see why they preferred then to stick their engines inside that wing route. Sir Fred never liked the wingtips on the Victor, believing that shock waves might form on one and not on the other. And they went in early 1948, allowing Lee to increase wingspan to 110 feet and add a fin with a rudder and tailplane on top. Most of the two-stage uh, sweep t- swept tailplane was elevator, and the tailplane span was only eventually 11 inches shorter than that of a Hawker Hunter main plane it resembled. It's open to debate about whether this is a crescent, a scimitar, a cusp. But compound sweep was not entirely new. Uh, Cousin, Arado's chief dynamicist, had come up with the same answer on his Arado 234 V-16 jet bomber. And it's popularly mythly believed that Lee discovered this on his visit to Germany in 1945. Um, He assured me this was not so. Uh, He never visited any aircraft firm apart from that of the Hurton brothers, who were coming up with the Gotter 229, the world's first pure-flying jet bomber, and he certainly never heard of the Arado design. The, real con- the only real concept I got out of the German visit was that sweep was a good thing, he told me, and the crescent wing on the HP-80 was evolved by ourselves and Hanley Page. It did not arise from anything Arado or anybody else did. I, I asked a lot of people involved in it, Reggie Stafford and et al., 
who first came up with the idea of the crescent wing. And he said, nobody came up with the crescent wing idea. But I remember to this day, he said to me, if you look at the yellow peril, it wouldn't surprise me, he said, if it wasn't Frederick Hanley Page who came up with the crescent wing idea. Seven designs were submitted to meet spec B35 46, the most advanced of which, here are the three, were the Delta Wing Vulcan and the Crescent Wing Victor. And as officialdom couldn't decide between them, um, it chose both and then added the Vickers Valiant as an insurance measure in case anything went wrong with the first two. The Victor was built in three major sub-assemblies, front, combined centre and rear and tail cone. At front was an H2S navigation and bombing radar scanner and prone visual position. Next came the crew pressure cabin, and the original design envisaged a front pilot seat on the port side, staggered slightly forward of the co-pilots on the starboard. The two navigators were supposed to have forward-facing seats behind the co-pilot, while slightly ahead of them on port side was the radio and electronics operator. And in emergency, they were all to be ejected in a capsule that would flutter down like an Apollo on a big um, parachute. This all proved too difficult, and so the nose eventually got attached to the fuselage with four large bolts. And if you go beyond the Victor now, you'll still see a gap, and that's where the parachute would have gone uh, for the nose coming down. Flight deck was altered to put ejection seats in. There, there's the cockpit of a, the, the K2 tanker. Um, ejection seats for the two pilots, but the rear crew of three now facing backwards in line abreast were expected to bail out manually through the entrance door on the port side. If you look at the entrance door now, you'll see a windshield. That was the windbreak to allow people to sort of bail out in emergency. The main thing, main thing that rankled at Cricklewood throughout the war, I was told, was the way the Halifax was always overshadowed by the Lancaster, which they aspired to the fact that the Lancaster could be adapted to carry far greater bomb loads and therefore always stole the limelight. Although the primary load of the HP-80 was to be Blue Danube, uh, Assistant Chief Designer Charles Joy told me that they strove to give the HP-80 a bomb capacity double that of the Lancaster, and in this they were greatly uh, helped by the Crescent Wing. Whereas the Valiant and the Avro Delta, the Avro Delta bomb bays are somewhat restricted by great spars, the center wing section of the HP-80 ended at about 30% cord, and therefore, because of the high sweep, the center wing spar box was well forward of the center of gravity where it crossed the fuselage. And this meant that the bomb bay only had to carry the weight of bombs or other military loads through four equally spaced fore-and-aft girders attached at intervals to heavy box section frames. At the time when the Boeing B-52A was designed around a military load of 34,000 pounds, the HP-80, despite being only half the size of the B-52's gross weight, had a bomb bay theoretically big enough to accommodate no fewer than 48 1,000-pound bombs. It was another very important feature, said Godfrey Lee. There was so much that fitted together correctly in this aeroplane. The man who first made ready to take the HP-80 prototype aeroplane was chief test pilot 
Headley George Hazelton, always known as Hazel. He joined Handy Page in April 1947 at the age of 32, and he told me that within two months of being arriving, he was called into Chief Designer Reggie Stafford's office and told of the latest challenge, a bomber that would be capable of 500 knots, 50,000 feet, and a range of 5,000 miles. If you can find out how to build it, he said to Stafford, I'll find out how to fly it. On the 24th of December 1952, while the rest of the world is cranking up the Yuletide spirit, Hazel, together with flight observer Ian Bennett, climbed aboard the silver HP-80, locked his radio on to transmit so that we could hear what was going on on the ground. It was only really a flying shell, weighing 95,000 pounds, did two low-level circuits with the undercarriage off, and, and then landed after a 17-minute flight. Uh, he'd landed, he'd forgotten that he'd put his um, onto automatic transmit, and it appeared that the sigh he gave was audible well round the air traffic. On the 2nd of January 1953, the Air Ministry officially announced that the aircraft had been named Victor. I suppose Gustav Victor Lackman might have thought that was very appropriate. Hazel did the first initial trials, and then virtually no more flying after that. He went to Wartair to be a Herald captain, and Johnny Allen in the audience became chief test pilot with Philip Spud Murphy as his deputy. The first production B1, costing £450,000 per basic airframe, took air on the 1st of February 1956. Dressed overall, matte silver, black silver numbers, stayed airborne for 90, 50 minutes with Johnny Allen's hands, Powered by Sapphire engines, rated £11,000. It was no sluggard, and as we've heard, on the 1st of June 1957, it became the largest aircraft in the world to break the sound barrier. If I'd known Johnny was here, I would have asked him this question direct, but I asked Spud Murphy instead a month ago why Johnny did it. And he said Johnny Adam did it to assert his superiority over the Vulcan. On the test flight from Gaden in Warwickshire, he put 917 into a shallow dive at 40,000 feet, inadvertently failed to keep an eye on the Mach meter and clocked up 675 MPH, which is Mach 1.02. The double sonic bang was heard from Banbury to Watford. (laughs) Victor was quite stable throughout, and Paul Langston had little sensation of going on, but he landed with the distinction of being first man to break the sound barrier going backwards. (laughs) <laughs> the Victor did slow rolls, loops, rolls off the top. In 14th of October 58, a Victor broke the UK to Malta record, beating the previous set by a Royal Naval Scimitar fighter by 67 miles an hour. Further 33 B1s were ordered in 55, the same year that the first service-to-air missile battery arrived around Moscow. Studies showed that a more powerful Victor was needed to gain 10,000 feet, and so the Victor II was derived by the B1 by the classic stretching process of fitting more powerful, this time Conway engines, more wing area, and a higher max all-up weight of 223,000 pounds. Cedric Vernon, who succeeded Lee as chief aerodynamicist, supervised the increasing wing from 110 feet to 120 feet, but instead of just tacking five feet onto each tip, which would have pushed the centre of gravity too far back, he divided the increase into 18 inches at each wing root and 3.6 inch, 3 foot 6 inches at each tip to keep the center of correct relative position. Uh, 
The other main change was changing over from DC to constant frequency AC electrical system. It sounds very mundane, but as Godfrey Lee said, an unbelievable improvement followed from going from DC to AC, not least when it came to fitting electronic countermeasures in that new tail at the back. Jammers the size of dustbins necessitated a tail which, with six peripheral aerials, resembled an old radial engine with a helmet counting, counting, which right at the back of the tail is the tail warning radar scanner, radome. The proposal to convert all B1s to this B2 standard was rejected because it would have taken half the price of a new B2, which was estimated then at 2.5 million in 1962. For those of you who'd like to think prices, you can probably pick up a typhoon for 70 million today. Um, the only the newest B1s were given the ECM tail and henceforward were known as B2, B1As. The original intention was to house the victors at Bassingbourne, Watton and Honington, but the first operational squadron was 10 squadron at Cottesmore in 1958. I just flag up there some of the main bomber airfields. Um, What, um, I think, I don't know if Michael Donovan's with us now from representing 10 Squadron, but I think 10 Squadron remained a wholly B1 unit throughout his life. B1s and B1As operated side by side on 15 Squadron at Cottesmore, 55 and 57 at Honington. 10 and 15 disbanded in 1963 and their place in the order of battle was taken by B2s of 100 and 139 Squadrons at Wittering. And if you like figures, Two Victor prototypes, 50 B1s, of which 24 were converted to B1As, and 34 B2s came into existence. The Victor production line came to a halt when XM718 was delivered to 100 Squadron on the 2nd of May, 1963. I'm often asked, as I flew them both, how did the Victor compare with its arch-rival, the Vulcan? The Victor had a greater range and ceiling, because of its better maximum lift coefficient and lower drag. Lee calculated that the original Avro 698 wing had about 120% of the transonic drag of the Crescent. But low wing loading was the key to the Vulcan's superior maneuverability and takeoff performance. The Victor was the more sophisticated design of the pair, especially when it came to systems, but that wasn't necessarily a good thing. Handy page split buzzbar, electrics were way ahead of their time, and the Vulcan B1 had nothing like the same degree of electrical redundancy in the air. But the Victor hydraulics, which involved separate circuits at different surfaces, sometimes operated with a will of their own in the early days. I have to say, Handy Page men added to their troubles by making the Victor more sophisticated than it need have been. However, the Victor shape remained virtually the same from 1948 right through to production while Avro had to redesign the Vulcan wing in 1948 when RAE proved that bringing the line of maximum thickness sharply forward avoided the loss of effective sweep inboard. And Godfrey Lee knew this already because he discussed the very topic with Ludwig at Göttingen in 1945. Furthermore, Avro had to put a kink in the Vulcan wing to increase Bruffett threshold after the first prototype had flown. The fact that Avro was forced, in effect, to turn their Vulcan in what it amounted to a crescent delta as late as 1945, you could argue, speaks volumes for the firm foundation on which the Victor was built. 
Just a bit of time on the uh, sort of operational overview. I've mentioned Blue Danube earlier on, but of course that's the only first in, in, in a family of colourful and wholly British-made nuclear weapons. This one on, on the front is the most powerful British thermonuclear weapon ever built, it, being loaded in training mode form onto a Victor. It is the Yellow Sun 2. This is our thermodynamic biggie. Um, but Victor carriers still had, with this free-fall weapon, to avoid, to approach within a few miles of their target, which, 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 which was not a very clever idea, as SA-2s and such like proliferated out of the Soviet Union. So in March 1956, Avro's Weapons Research Division was awarded a contract to develop a standoff bomb called Blue Steel to be mounted on the Vulcan and the Victor B-2. Um, an Avro weapons division man said to me, quote, the Victor was an awful aeroplane to get blue steel on because of the limited ground clearance. Hanley Page thought that Avro deliberately made it thus so that he couldn't get it under the ground. <laughs> uh, but in typical Hanley Page fashion, uh, they solved the problem, if only to thwart the evil northerners in whatever scheme they thought we were going to do. Um, let me show you a blue steel. For those of you who are worried, the, the bottom fin had to be folded. When it went under, there was a little switch here. It said fin fold, and you, uh, as the captain released it, you had to get the fin to drop before you released it. But those are the sort of magical ways in which you could get this sort of beast under, under an airplane. In the end, I say blue steel clearance already under a low-slung Victor was managed with a mere 14 inches to spare. Uh, the Blue Steel did nothing for sealing, so in 1961, the operated Conway 17, CO-17 engines were installed capable of 20,000-pound <coughs> thrust. Um, here's the B2SR, that, the, basically the, the Blue Steel Victor. 21 of these were converted to the B2R, which means retrofit standard. Blue Steel was an excellent standoff weapon in which it required no single signals from outside to go about its business. It couldn't be jammed or diverted by countermeasures, and its profile was infinitely variable for short distances at high speed to 200-mile range at a descent speed of 0.8 Mach 0.9. It was estimated Blue Steel released over Manchester could put seven, several megatons worth of H-bomb on Manchester to within 700 yards. And some would argue that isn't a bad alternative at any time of the year. <laughs> um, <laughs> it must not be forget that Victor's secondary role, as laid down in 1954, was to supplement tactical bomber forces by delivering maximum weight of high-explosive bombs by night or, if practical, by day on targets a relatively short distance from base. And Victor crews regularly refined their conventional bombing skills over the Libyan ranges before Mr. Gaddafi came in, and victors were detached to Butterworth on exercise profiteer every year during the Malayan emergency. Although they did nothing more aggressive than drop bombs on the Song Song and China Rock ranges, it was there to be seen to be ready to go into action. We were not sure what we were there for because we had no targets, a 10 squadron's pilot said to me. But when Victor B-1s flew around U.S. base in the Philippines, they were demonstrating that Britain had not lost the will or the capability to defend the Commonwealth and its friends. This, just as a matter of interest, I've shown this before, but this is 510 Tommy Thompson, 
and his Cottesmore crew dropping 35 £1,000 bombs on the China Rock Range for the benefit of the Far Eastern press. Uh, I talked to the navigator, the plotter on this, and he'd said, when we set off, we didn't quite know what the proximity fusing was going to work, you see, because they, they, you know, they feared that although these come out in Iraq, that maybe the bottom bomb in the stick might initiate a chain reaction that would go straight back inside the bomb bag. Um, and I can see where he's coming from on that, because it isn't a thing you practice regularly. Honington and Cottesmore crews detached for two and a half to three months during confrontation. 16th of September, 1964, two crews were given go-bags during confrontation and side-arms. And I suppose that's the nearest a Victor crew has ever got to dropping bombs in anger. <clears throat> Victor B-2 stayed in the UK, a nuclear deterrent, but as high-level ops ceased to be viable... Uh, we started going back low level, which you have this low level camouflage scheme to so you can penetrate between the radar cover. Crews initially cleared down to a thousand feet and then lower as they became proficient. B1 and B1A squadrons started first and after a series of low level firings, Blue Steel was declared effective from 1964. You had to cut back the range obviously and you were now launching a Blue Steel at maybe only 30 miles from the target. And you rush in, pull up, climb sufficiently to let the missile fall away, the stenter engine to fire, it would then zoom up to 17,000 feet, stenter engine would cut out, and it would detonate with a theoretical accuracy of 300 yards. But when I say that to you, you can see why the Victor was killed off as a bomber. Metal fatigue killed off the Victor as a bomber as sure as it killed off the Valiant. We had a tremendously redundant structure, said Godfrey Lee, with distributed flanges, a multitude of bolts hanging the wings together, unlike the Valiant, which was dependent on a few spars. However, the Victor was designed to spend the majority of its life in the calm upper air. And yet, from 64, it has to go down into a new low-level environment. Whereas the massive strength of the Vulcan wings stressed, in many cases, for Skybolt, it could sustain the, the gust. The Victor rode out gust and turbulence as the wings flexed up and down. It was like giant shock absorbers. It was great to be air crew. Giant shock absorbers took out all the gusts. I remember one manoeuvre, I think it was called the 2H. You'd run in at 350 knots. You'd pull 1.5G up to 11,000 feet, release the blue steel on the, on the missile, on the nav radar's call. But as you pulled up from level, you could hear the wings crack. By the time 10139 squadrons disbanded by 68, the lower boom forgings were cracked on virtually all the B2Rs. All but two aircraft were therefore flown to Radlett to be mothballed, and after 53 years, the sight and sound of a Handley Beige bomber was to be no more. I haven't got much time left, so I'll just canter through the other types. This, the Victor B2SR, which I flew on 543 squadron. If you look closely, I'm second from the left. When I joined that crew, I brought the average age down to 45. <laughs> the guy on the far right, he'd been shot down in fairy battles uh, in Sudan. The captain, who's next door to the boss, just re leaving this one, he, we used to share a room on detachment, he'd wake up screaming, and I'd say, what is it, boss? And he'd say, oh, I've just been chased by Messerschmitts over the desert. <laughs> so that, that's 543 Squadron. Um, one victor could cover 
the UK in two hours. It's the longest ranging aircraft in the US inventory. Um, and as a Soviet Navy, this is a camera crate we used to carry, 15 cameras. If we used all of the film, we come back saying Alpha One and Kodak shares would go up. <laughs> there it is in the Bombay, and surrounding the Bombay are uh, a forward and a, a, bit, a rear Bombay tank. Um, that enabled us to fly cover an area of 400,000 square miles in eight hours, and we could position plot the, the, the position of every vessel in the Mediterranean from one, from one uh, flight using the H2S radar. Thereby enabled Dennis Healy to make his famous statement that the British knew the position of every Soviet ship in the Mediterranean and could cope with them if the need applied. So there's 543 Victor SR, longest ranging airplane at the time in the Royal Air Force Infantry. Tankers. In 62, it was decided to use the first generation victors as tankers as they withdrew from bomber service. Unfortunately, the sudden demise of the Valiant left a tanker vacuum and Handy Page worked day and night on an accelerated program to convert six B1As to two-point tankers with wing pods only. Spud Murphy looked after the Victor tanker project because he had experience on that with Vickers on Valiant tankers. And he got a Queen's Com for bringing two-point tanker in 17 weeks early. I say uh, six of these interim tankers, known as BK-1As, were delivered to 55 Squadron at Marham. On the 2nd of November 65, the first three-point Victor tanker took to the air. The ten modified to this were known as K-1s. Although externally similar, they then had a Bombay hose drum unit and 55 and 57 squadrons took over using the K-1. As B-1... Eight bombers returned to Radlett. Fourteen were converted to three-point tankers, and they were known as K-1As. The first Valiant tanker unit, 214 Squadron, reformed at Marham in October 1966. By the time the last tanker conversion had been completed in June 1967, Hanley Page had produced two, six two-point and 24 three-point tankers. They were, they were much greater improvement over Valiant because the Valiant didn't have wing pods, and the three-point Victor could dispense twice as much fuel. We've heard about the B2Rs when they made redundant, went to be converted to tankers. The wittering wing with its drop tanks could add two drop tanks worth of fuel to every tow line and would be less limited operating out of hot and high climates. Within two months of devise of HP, the Victor K2 tank contract had been awarded to Hawker Sidley at the old Avro factory in Woodford. And at that stage, Sir Fred must have turned in his grave. The 28 Victor 2Rs initially of a conversion, starting with 21 B2Rs, and the remainder would have come from 543 Squadron, which disbanded on 31st of May 1974. A Victor flight of four aircraft was kept in being at Witten to monitor French nuclear tests. That's one of the roles we had, to fly through Chinese and French nuclear tests to monitor those. But in the end, it made no difference because there was only enough money to modify 24 Victors to the K2 standard, which meant that that equipped 55, 57 squadrons and an OCU, and 214 squadron had to disband. Uh, and there it might have stayed out of the public eye had Argentina not invaded the Falkland Islands on the 2nd of April 1982. We all know about the Black Buck mission. I know particularly well it was my crew that went off and did Black Buck 1 under a new captain. But of the 80 air crew 
that gather for pre-flight briefing in a flapping tent at Wide Awake, what you were effectively looking at was a Victor K2 operation that launched a standoff Vulcan at the very end. <laughs> Victor crews extended other types besides the Vulcan, Nimrod searched the sea for submarines, Harrier replacement was folded to the tax force, Hercules transports dropped high priority, supplies over a free but usable port Stanley Air Force, all courtesy of the ubiquitous Victor K2. On two-month period, these tankers flew some 3,000 hours on 530 combat missions and gave away 23 million pounds of weight in fuel. And during the whole South Atlantic campaign, only three missions failed through malfunctions of the Victor's refueling equipment, and none failed because of any failure on the aircraft itself. The final Victor achievement was to fly 299 sorties with 100% serviceability, flying missions supporting the action Desert Storm against Saddam Hussein in 1990 and 91. The last official Victor flight took place on the 30th of November, 1993. But as we've heard this week, Bob Provdo, I hope he's still in the audience here, um, officially, I suppose, got airborne for the last time in teasing Tina um, at Bruntingthorpe at Maytime. Um, and two victors remain in running condition, one at Bruntingthorpe and one at Elvington. So a quick overview, conclusion. The Crescent Wind Victor, I think, was years ahead of its time and flew smoothly at altitude like a knife through butter. It provided Britain with its highest flying and largest bomb-carrying nuclear warplane. It was a st superb strategic reconnaissance asset, and in the twilight of its career, it did sterling, sterling service in enabling other people to go about their business as an airborne tanker. It was the last of the V-bombers to enter service and the last to retire 40 years later. Set against the criteria, that is a remarkable achievement for a remarkably flexible aeroplane. And if you look at some of the designs that are now being mooted for future aircraft, for future bombers, for future long-range strike assets, some of them bear a marked resemblance to the victor. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Andrew. What a wonderful tribute that was to Handley Page.